everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This is the final movie episode of 1994, and we're moving on to 1995, obviously. And uh, so the five movies we're going to be discussing this episode with John, my co-host... Hey, 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 hey. Is Maverick, Mixed Nuts, True Lies, Clerks, and Reality Bites. All of these are selected by John. Thank you, John, for helping. Every... I never talk about this, but every season... I like to, I like to count every year as a season. Um... There's so many movies to go through. We only discuss 25 or so per episode or per season, but I will build a list. I'm sure you've seen them in my voodoo. It's like it starts off with like 35 to 40 movies or whatever, and I have to cut them down and then find movies, of course, that were not in my voodoo other places. And, you know, just cut, 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 cut. And I also feel like I overwhelm my regular movie person, Jacob. So, John has been nice enough to take some of the weight off of his shoulders. It gives me a chance to see some movies, in some cases I haven't seen, and in some cases haven't seen since they, they came out. I'm curious, because you kind of play with fire by choosing movies you've never seen before, so are any of these new watches for you? No, these, I, I will say this, it has been a long time since I saw Mixed Nuts last. Yeah. Like, I saw it on video when it came out, and that was it. So it was interesting to see it again. Yeah, I know that when we were doing the sci-fi segment, sometimes I have specialists come in. Like, I had Rob for a while as my action guy. You were my sci-fi guy for 80 through 89. And then I now have a Disney guy, uh, Andrew, um, that... You know, it, 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 they, they specialize in one particular thing, usually because it's what they know best or that's what they have access to because Drew has the Disney Channel. But there were a lot of newer stuff, I remember, when we were discussing sci-fi, like just stuff out of nowhere like we had never seen before. Yeah, it was kind of fun to, to step into some of those things, especially like those post-apocalyptic movies. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, yeah, I've never seen half of these. I know of them. Let's check them out. All right, so let's start off with Mixed Nuts, actually, and I think it's the weakest of the bunch, yet I find myself watching it every Christmas. Oh, yeah, it, it is definitely this uh, Christmas farce film. It's based on a stage play that I'm not going to say the French name because I'm not a French. I don't speak French well. It's Les Mixed Nuts. <laughs> yeah. It translates to something along the lines of uh, Santa Claus is garbage. Wow. Or, uh, Santa Claus is a stinker. I've seen both. I think direct translated Santa Claus is garbage. I think it's directly. <laughs> but, but colloquially, I think it's Santa Claus would be a, is a stinker. I feel like this is during that era, right before a lot of these guys broke out on their own, the SNL guys, where they're always added to ensemble films that weren't very successful and critics didn't care for. Because I feel like before this leading up, we had Airheads, we had PCU, we had Coneheads and stuff like that, where it's just a bunch of like, these are the new guys on SNL. Let's add them to the rotation of some of these ensemble comedies. And it seemed like none of them really hit home because it wasn't their voice. Like in 95, we're going to get like Billy Madison and Tommy Boy and stuff like that where, and then Chris Rock starts doing his stand-up and they find their voice. This feels like another one where they, they like Adam Sandler and they had to curate something for him in this. And I, I feel like almost everybody in this is miscast or their characters are fucking stupid. Well, I think every, I think 
comedy, everyone is pretty terrible. <laughs> because that's kind of the, the point is that it's just a lot of crappy people stuck in this uh, crap situation on Christmas Eve. And then eventually they're supposed to grow as characters and whatnot. But yeah, I think everyone's fine for the most part. Juliet Lewis, so. dude. Come on. Juliet Lewis is one of the fucking dumbest characters I've ever oh, seen in a movie. Oh, I'm not saying they're dumb. She and uh, Anthony uh, Lee are like the dumbest couple and they're horrible people. And But that's partially why the comedy is there is, you know, these people are giving each other bad advice and, uh, you know, again, do you, I use the word farce. That basically is what it is. Is It's just a bunch of people getting into bigger and bigger predicaments that are completely ridiculous. Like, again, uh, our hero, uh, and, uh, Anthony char- Anthony's character gets uh, hurt and they go and take him to, not a doctor, a vet. Yeah, and he was messed up on on animal tranquilizers and stuff, <laughs> and and Bish just kind of goes crazy for the rest of the film. And I, I will say this: the which you mentioned Adam Sandler, and I think his shtick is really not not the least funniest thing in this movie because he's just baby voicing all his lines and you know purposefully doing this, but singing badly. Yeah, and it and it's just it's more. I liked it when I was 13. And, you know, at 42, it's just annoying and un- and not funny. Whereas everyone else, I can kind of get behind their all their dysfunctions. I still just, I cannot get beyond the point where Juliet Lewis decides to, you have to unload a gun by firing it inside a place filled with people. You don't, do you not understand how a gun works? So don't, you just hand the gun over to someone else. And, and I know that it, it, drives the last half with the what is it, the the strangler that's in the neighborhood yeah. or whatever that you know i but still i was like that's the dumbest thing i've ever ever seen yeah it's that i mean you've got the fact that malakon gets uh, trapped in the uh in the elevator and is just aggressively being and you know trying to get some of the tension but being annoying about it yeah i actually and, I, i'll say this i enjoyed her she's my favorite performance of this because she's so ridiculous it just she's just so angry about everything it's fun and like her the very end of the thing where she's trying to leave and a and the fruitcake cup is thrown out a window and it smashes into her shield and she's just she's just that whole i'm you know it's like i'm done with life moment <laughs> The uh, I actually kind of liked uh, Liev Schreiber's performance. It wasn't for 1994. I thought it was at least a little step ahead of how we were portraying those kind of characters back then. Yeah, because he's played a trans woman, and she's it, you kind you can kind of see it's like Liev isn't playing it like I'm a guy who's cross dressing it. He's playing it like I'm a woman. Yeah. It's like, damn it, I am sexy, and I'm going to flirt with with Steve Martin. And to, and to all their credit, they're also not doing the typical, and granted, this is 90s, but I'm going to use it like this, 80s homophobia. Ah, no, it's a gay person. They're, they're wearing a dress. I'm so awkward. It's just, he's more of just, okay, I'm doing this now. 
Yeah, well, I think it helps that this is directed from a woman uh, instead of a man who's going for the obvious laughs. Nora Ephron has always kind of had her pulse on, like, more sensitive uh, approaches to comedy during this era. You know, I, was she coming off of... I, I can't remember if she directed Sleepers in Seattle or just wrote it, but... Um, she directed it. She okay. Directed it. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of like a, a bump in her career, like, downwards, but... Um, it's funny, it's also, I'm thinking, like, Steve Martin, this is kind of like his uh, era where he, he was, like, dyeing his hair, uh, and, and all the movies were blo- uh, bombing. Like, there's Leap of Faith, uh, Simple Twist of Fate, and this. And he seemed like he was a little lost after House Sitter. Yeah, there's, there's definitely that kind of lull in his career, although I like Leap of Faith. I haven't no, seen it forever, but I remember it just not doing well. Yeah, it's like, I don't remember the other one, but yeah, and then and then he uh, he had to come back the next year with Father of the Bride too, and and he's always had ups and downs though. I mean, there's a small period where his movies really were very successful. It's like from uh, All of Me to House Sitter, and then after that he has like these bumps where he has a lot of bombs. He he'll disappear for a little bit or something like that, and then he he works on his own projects. I, I think he does him and. Um, Rita Wilson, I think, are really sweet in this movie, but they're—I feel like they're just not given a lot to do, considering who they are. Well, yeah, it, you you do kind of want it, it because this is a stage—you're based off a stage play. It does feel like you could have substituted big name talent for smaller for smaller people and gotten the same result, if not better. Yeah, but I don't know if it would have been green light in it with with a different cast. Exactly. And that's also, I think, why there's less, like, transphobia in this film is because I'm not going to be like, oh, my God, the French are so progressive. But that is kind of part part and parcel with things like, the you know, uh, what the birdcage is based off. Right, right, yeah. So that they're, you're willing to have humor in that vein without taking it to something that's mean-spirited. All right, so our next film is Maverick, and... Honestly, it's the one franchise I'm really surprised isn't a franchise. Like, it is on television. This movie made a shitload of money, and it's a lot of fun, and I'm really surprised there was never another entry in this fran- in, in the series. I would love to see these guys again. Yeah, I, seriously, it's like, as much as anything that's even remotely successful gets sequels these days, and or it becomes a franchise, it's nice that this is a one-off. But yeah, I really would love to have another adventure. It's, it's impossible now. Look, I like to separate myself, you know, like the actor from the the performance or the, the work that they do. Um, but nobody wants to see Mel Gibson. I mean, he only does a low-budget movies for a reason because he has a very small audience and those people are well, questionable well, in their case. Yeah, well, nowadays, yeah. But now... Current Mel Gibson, yeah, I wouldn't want to have another sequel to this. No, but I mean, like... Say, Mel Gibson? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, say right after he did, like, uh, What Women Want or something, he had a two-year opening there. I could see, like, Jodie Foster and James Garner and him. Like, the thing is that it requires James Garner, I think, for the energy that they have together. And, and of course, the big reveal is that it is the... Right? It is supposed to be the original Maverick? And this I, is his son? I am not entirely certain. I... I head canon that, but I don't know. Because 
it feels like that because I've never seen the show. So yeah, I've never seen the show either, and I'm kind of curious if it's the same timeline or it is supposed to take place like you know 30 years later. If I'm counting the math, no, it was almost. So I know that James Garner broke big. Uh, the Maverick, I think, started like in '57, went to like '62, and then he became a huge movie star for a while. And they try to continue the show with Roger Moore as his cousin or something from England. And then there was a spinoff with called like in 1979, it was called Young Maverick, and then they brought it back again for a series called uh, Maverick Returns or something like that, '82. So I mean, it always had some sort of continuation and following. Um, so it's not a surprise that they did make a movie, especially with the Western revival after uh, Unforgiven won the Oscar. This is the only one of the bunch I remember being like a really good balance of action, adventure, and comedy, and was actually good. Because there's, I think Wagons East is overhated, though I can see the problems. And of course, what's the one with Chris Farley? Um, oh, uh, almost heroes. Yeah, I think of Cabin Boy, which is in a Western. Uh, no, no. But, you know, all those heroes is a Western comedy, and it's not very good. It feels like it's really hard to get the Western comedy right. It either has to be all spoof or, you know, light fun like this one. And, and it's so rare to get it right. And I don't know. I think part of it's the cast, of course, the fun. And, and Richard Donner, you know, he can command a decent budget. I think that's the problem with a lot of Westerns is that that they always have to choose the same crappy sets in Vancouver, you know? And you see the same ones over and over. They're always muddy, and, and, and it's like one street, and that's it. This is like a full-fledged, like, set. It looks like a town. Yeah. Well, what's nice about this, too, is, like you mentioned uh, Dick Donner and all that, is, yeah, he's blending this this uh, humor and his light tone, and he's not really making a Western so much as he's making... Like the sting or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. like dirty rotten scoundrels, but in the old west. Yeah, yeah. It's just he's the all the western stuff is set dressing for a story about a con man who's just trying to get to a poker game. Yeah, and I, I gotta say this uh, of everything in this film that I love, Graham Greene. Oh is yes. the fucking star of this this fucking movie. When, when he comes in, he almost steals the entire thing. He one hundred percent does, and I Harvey goes. Shit, I would just want to watch an entire uh, film about Graham Greene's uh, tribe bilking uh, people out of shit. Yeah, <laughs> rich idiots. <laughs> yeah, give him the, the real American experience, quote-unquote. <laughs> just everything with him is such a thing, and I swear, he, he's truly like, probably like my top three of that, what else, that guy actors. You know? uh-huh. The... Uh... The final sequence on the riverboat is loaded with, like, uh, westerns, you know, musicians and guys that used to be in movies and TV shows and stuff. That's a lot of fun. It was kind of an era of reflecting back on what we grew up on. Because I remember the... There's a series of movies called The Gambler. I'm sure you know that one. The Kenny Rogers movies. And I believe it's the fourth one where they decided, hey, let's get all the surviving stars of these old Western TV shows and movies or whatever, and let's just have fun with those cameos. And Maverick has a touch of that. Yeah, it looks like they did that with Back to the Future 3 also. And it's always kind of fun that if you got these guys around still, you know, get them, get them in their clothes and get them to uh, say old-timey Westernisms and... Because, you know, hell, they look the part already, so 
let them go and have fun. No, in reality, a lot of these Western movies have people in it that would not still be alive. I mean, what is it? What do you think the average age back then of a cowboy was? Like 25, 30, and then by 50, they were dead? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes you see these movies and you're like, okay, like the sheriff in Tombstone. You're like, yeah, I get it's an homage to an old Western guy, but good Lord, I think he's 85. <laughs> yeah, it's like, he, yeah, he wouldn't have lasted that long. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a highly entertaining film. Uh, I don't really have a whole lot to say about it. It's just, it, it, like you said, it's just a con artist movie, and this is a one of the top, I think, of those. Yeah, it, it's, it is probably of all the films we saw this one is the most fun film my my, is... my favorite one's gonna be the next one okay so what's your, let's let's go to the next one uh true lies i think it's the last okay so i don't have any serious issues with titanic and avatar like i'm not the guy that's shitting all over them but it seems weird that they were so big when they're okay I feel like True Lies is the last time where he was having fun and not trying to make the greatest movie ever made. And I almost wish Titanic hadn't made a bazillion dollars and that he feels like now it's going to take him 12 years to top himself over and over and over. Honestly, I remember liking this movie a lot more when it came out, but this time around, this really didn't do all that much for me. I Now, it's like, Here's the thing, it's not a bad film, because, let's be honest, Cameron knows how to shoot a fucking movie. Yeah. He knows how to spend the money. He knows how to spend the fucking money. I can't believe he built a whole bridge and a fake Harrier jet. But a big part of this is, it kind of felt like he and Arnold wanted to make, like, a Roger Moore era Bond film. Uh Uh-huh. But with this 90s action sense. Yeah, well, I'll say this, it's funnier than any of the Roger Moore Bond movies, that's for sure. That is true. But I think it's not... I think the humor doesn't work as much as it thinks it does. I think Cameron really thinks he's funnier than he actually is. And there's, there is stuff that's good. I mean, Tom Arnold is definitely the highlight of the humor. Yeah, yeah. I like I like his argument with the horse. I thought that was really funny. And how polite he is. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's actually one of the things I kind of... In thinking about it, just kind of going, this gets really lame. The idea of you have the, the this chase of our villain on a motorcycle, Arnold on a horse, uh, that they go into a hotel and up elevators to the roof to continue the chase. And I'm just kind of watching this going, why did I like this? This is fucking stupid. <laughs> I, I think it's the absurdity. I mean, it is, let's say this, I believe this is... Uh, more comedy than action. I don't know if you're supposed to take a lot of the action seriously. It is amazing, but I wouldn't categorize this as an action film. I almost put this more in a comedy era. Well, the, the problem is, it's like, as I said, the comedy I don't feel works as well as actual action, like them blowing the shit out of that bridge and in the climax and all that stuff is fucking amazing to watch, and that's Pete, you know, it's like, it's almost Pete Cameron yeah. right there. But the, then... The Harrier jet dropping an Uzi and it falling and shooting all the people and not hitting her at any point. It kind of go, um... Yeah, I didn't like... I, I have a weird problem now. As a teenager, I'm like, holy crap, boobs and guns. You know what I mean? I thought Jimmy Curtis, Lee Curtis. 
uh, was like the hottest thing on the planet. And sometimes I think they play her just a little too stupid. And it's, yeah. it's a little embarrassing, I think, for her. Yeah, like, as I said, that's... When I started thinking about it, and, I mean, it's almost telegraphed at the beginning where Arnold gets out of a wetsuit, he's in a tuxedo, and we're kind of going, oh, I, it's like, I never realized this was kind of a Bond film, because I was going back with my memories of having, you know, having seen it years, years ago, and thinking about, like, yeah, this kind of does do a lot of that lame shit that you would see in those <laughs> Roger Moore Bond films where they're trying to be fun and absurd instead of being, you know, especially with, like, the Daniel Craig stuff where it's kind of grim and dark shit. Right. Well, yeah, we're coming off the Timothy Dalton ones, which were a lot grimmer, especially um, License to Kill. Yeah, so, uh, like I said, it's, it has the 90, 90s action sensibilities, but you're kind of trying to do this... And I, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily go like it's a spy comedy, but yeah, it's just I've watched it, it's just kind of going. It's not really hitting as well as it should. And yes, this is the '90s where we had Con Air and The Rock and Face Off, which is we're in the time where we were doing really ridiculous movies. Yeah. So it's I don't hate it or anything for it but I don't think it for me it did not hold up as well as it really probably could have if it maybe if it's uh, held a little bit straighter to the action side of it instead of trying to be a, a comedy it's it's funny I think this is the first well no I guess last action here was the first of like the high concept huge scope action films like I know we had I know they spent a bunch of money on um, Rambo 3, but it didn't really kickstart anything because that was kind of a bomb. But it seems like after like Last Action Hero and True Lies and stuff like that is when they started kicking up, like, oh, now these are really big budget, like epic, you know, Bruckheimer kind of films that are spending like 70 to $100 million to give you something you've never seen before. Yeah, and again, I even, even to its credit, I have not seen a horse in an elevator. <laughs> this is towards the end of Schwarzenegger's run because I feel like and, and the movies have not been re-embraced after Eraser but like you know how Last Action Hero bombed pretty bad to open up like the week after uh, Jurassic Park but it was welcomed fairly quickly I think on video and then now of course everybody kind of digs it but I feel like you know True Lies and Eraser were kind of the end because people just didn't care for End of Days the sixth the sixth day, is yeah, that sixth day? Yeah. Um, Which, you know, I, I give I'll, I'll give a little bit of credit to sixth day, but end of days, my God, that's yeah. a piece of shit. That was such a boring. Yeah, I like the sixth day. Um, what was the one? Is it called Collateral Damage? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's just so, so interesting because him and Stallone and all those guys were like either trying to change their image or it was over for them because like Van Damme, you know, and Seagal, they were over within a couple years uh, after after this and. Um, uh, Stallone tried to remake himself with Copland, and it's just kind of interesting how we were moving out the big, bulky action guys. And now, like, Keanu and Nicolas Cage and stuff like that were coming in and taking over. It, well, it kind of became a little bit more of... We, we wanted to see... And I can't believe I'm going to use this phrase in conjunction with Nicolas Cage. The everyman. <laughs> <sighs> a little bit more... Like, we saw, like, say... Like, uh, 
Oh God, who, who was supposed to be one of those action films? Uh, well, where dialogue was important in some way, like being able to handle the actual acting. Well, it's like uh, Matt Damon was not a person I would have ever associated with an action. Right, thing right, yeah. Before Identity comes out. And it works because you don't see Matt Damon as an action, as an action star. The, um, the next film we're going to discuss is Clerks. I thought that I was going to hate this movie because when I revisited Mallrats, I do not feel like it is as good as I used to think it was, which I used to worship. That and Chase and Amy, and they watch both, and they feel so pretentious and stiff. And maybe maybe what makes Clerks better is knowing that it was his first film and that it was only like $25,000 or whatever, and it's just two locations. It's just guys who are not professional actors, just watching them. It's like a homemade movie, and I, it, it was a lot easier to handle, I think. Well, it's like... There's, you know, kind of like every generation we get these, uh, you get a film that kind of is trying to tackle what the essence of the, the youth is. Yeah. And you have, like, you know, uh, in this year, we and we'll talk, we'll talk about the other one a little bit later that we really kind of seems to be this, but you had the slick uh, Hollywood version of this made for, like, Mass public consumption, and then you have Clerks, you know, which is basically Gen X taking a camera and pointing it at itself and saying, "This is the kind of dirty shit that we talk about. <laughs> we are filthy, obscene motherfuckers, and I'm not, you know, it's like, and we're not going to, uh, you know, let little things like." Uh, uh, cinematic talent pulled us back. Right, and we're also coming out of an era where, you know, all of Gen X was supposed to be yuppies, you know? That they were supposed to be up-and-comers and trying to get all the money they can. This is kind of like a reversal where you're seeing, like, underdogs, you know? This, I mean, I hate using the word, but slackers was what was talked about a bunch at this time, about just everyday blue-collar, just trying to pay the bills, you know, brain-dead, stupid jobs. And it wasn't really talked about that much before Clerks. Yeah, and that's the thing is, if you you know boil it down to it, this is probably the most accurate depiction of working a shitty job. You just kind of sit there, you take the customer's bullshit, you uh, kind of you with Dante at least you uh, try not to get fired. Yeah. wanting to do the things that your uh, acerbic best friend will do. Oh God, Randall! Randall, I get why people love Randall, but Jesus, Randall, like just fucking—he doesn't play with fire. He covers in gasoline first, <laughs> and then walks away smiling as he burns the place down. And that's the thing, and it's the whole—I know you haven't seen the third film yet, but that's kind of an interesting uh, trajectory of these characters over the course of all these films—is kind of watching Randall actually gain some self-perspective. Yeah, I mean, I hated part two so much that, I mean, I even have three because someone gave me the code for it, but man, I'm holding off on I don't know. I've heard it's way better than two. I, I just don't know what to tell you. It is. It, it's, it is. It's definitely one of Smith's best films. Is his wife in part three? Because if she is, that's automatically a turnoff for me. Uh, she is briefly. Okay, because god damn, whenever, whenever, I mean, I don't mind his daughter too much, but man, his wife is a terrible, terrible actress. 
Yeah, he's definitely of the not a not a performer performers. Yeah, and, and there is some staginess, obviously, to this, especially with um, oh, what is Dante's girlfriend? I can't remember, but her dialogue is is almost too rehearsed and unnatural, like the way it is with uh, Kevin Williamson and his writing for Dawson's Creek. <laughs> yeah, it it does show that Smith was was a guy who, and let's, let's you know. Card, all cards on the table. That's was always his best feature. Was he, even though his his speeches were always verbose and things, they were kind of like you know they're like David Mamet speeches, except filthy, filthy fucking <laughs> yeah stuff. Have you ever read the comics? Because the comics are even filthier. Oh yeah, I have. I I never had the Clerks comic. I've read them, but I do have Chasing Dogma somewhere. The one that I really liked, and it was insanely filthy, and this started the conversation, I think, in pop culture that Star Wars was kind of cool again. Do you remember, like, Star Wars, for about seven, eight years, was kind of dying off, and no one really gave a shit, like, 85 to, like, 93? Then all of a sudden, the game started coming out, and the books, you know, the Timothy Zahn books, and stuff like that, and Dark Horse started doing the comics, and then Clerks actually had, like, a conversation. You're like, holy fucking shit, they're having a conversation about Star Wars, that nobody thought was cool at the time. Like, it's, it's like talking about Planet of the Apes. And all of a sudden, like, that whole pop culture of the 70s, all that stuff started coming back big time. Yeah, because it, well, it just became it's the idea that this was all just the sort of stuff that you would talk about with your friends at a Comic-Con. And now we're putting it in movies. So now we're actually going to have, you know, weird discussions about comic books. We're now going to talk about, you know, the pop culture movies. We're going to... Again, take the nostalgia of Gen X and kind of start examining it because we can. Like Tarantino did it too with the the like a virgin speech and yeah, yeah. I was saying Tarantino and Smith, and I feel like I feel like in a way that um, Linklater did it too, but a lot more subtle. Like he he like doing Days of Confused in the era was his commentary without actually having the discussion about it. Yeah, and and that was the thing is where Smith kind of goes is he just is there to have this conversation that I'm sure he had with his best with his friends talking about the weird you know just what would it mean to blow up a not fully functional Death Star? Yeah, well, yeah that would mean that contractors were killed. Well, it's it's funny as Clerks almost feels like it's the beginning of podcasting, like where you just sit around with your friends and you record it so other people can hear it too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Have you ever seen um, Free Enterprise? Yes, I have. I love that movie. There's Some of the dialogue feels stiff like that, too. It's a little forced. Um, but I feel like this, that's like the only way you're going to get, like... Um, you know how Tarantino influenced, like, 50 movies afterwards? There wasn't a whole lot of Clerks-influenced films. And I feel like Free Enterprise is one of those, like, oh, yeah, if you like Clerks, you're going to like this. Yeah, I could, I could look it up sometime and actually maybe build a list of movies that are Clerks ripoffs. Because I know they exist. I mean, it's very obviously that they that someone saw this and went, "Oh, I can do that." In the same way that Smith saw Slacker and went, "Oh, I can do that." So I know they exist, but the amount of success. Yeah, probably Free Enterprise is probably the most successful of those. Yeah. I, I, I worry that... 
Well, you know, I, I think Smith's best movies are when he went away from the genre, where he did the horror stuff. I think Tusk and Red Seder is two best movies. And I worry that because um, the real money is in the uh, Jay and Silent Bob franchise, is that's what he's going to constantly go back to. I mean, yes, thank goodness he owns the rights to those characters. He kept those. Um, but I feel like there's more ground to be gained if he does horror films or, or stuff that tests, you know, that goes out of his comfort zone. And he doesn't do that very often. In fact, I've seen him get nervous so many times uh, whenever they offer him something. Like, remember he was going to do a Fletch movie and that never came together. And, and, and then there was Green Hornet, which he walked away from because he said he couldn't handle that kind of production. I feel like well, he, he gets nervous well, and he wants to go back to his comfort. We should, we should be honest with that, too. He did cop out. And, <laughs> yeah, he did cop out. Well, that that does seem like... Well, first off, it's not his script. And B, um, Bruce Willis was notoriously difficult during that. But it does seem like, yeah, that was the time when he's like, okay, I'll be a little bold. But it... it, it yeah, so he stepped out of his comfort zone without stepping out of his comfort zone and walked right into a brick wall. And yeah. kind of went, okay, Jay and Silent Bob are going to run around... Uh, in Canada, fighting a moose. That's I want. When is Moose Jaws ever going to happen? Apparently, he has a deal, which he was talking about. Uh, uh, I guess at the beginning of Clerks Three, is that Lionsgate gave him like a limit. He's like, if you um, if you spend up to six million dollars, um, or, or if you keep it under six million dollars, we'll distribute whatever you want to make because you have such a built-in audience that we can always clear like a lot of profit if you keep it under that amount. So. But are the rules that he has to have Jay and Silent Bob? I don't know. But Moose Jaws counts because it's still a horror film. As long as it's not as bad as what? What the fuck was that? Yoga Hosers? God, that that was the absolute <laughs> rock bottom. That that was certainly an odd one, and I have spoken about that one on a different podcast. Uh, I don't know where I I'm going with this. It. I enjoy the film, but it is not good. No, I, I when the movie Dead stops for Ralph Garman to do his. Uh, Shtick. I thought we talked about this. I think uh, like a couple months ago or something. I can't remember. I we may we may have talked about. It. I think it was off uh, off mic. Oh okay. All right. So let's get to our final film of the, the episode. It is Reality Bites, a movie I enjoyed way more as an adult than I did <laughs> at the time because I didn't get a lot of what Ben Stiller was trying to do. I mean, I was I was I guess I was almost old enough. I was seventeen or eighteen when I saw it. But I didn't get past that. You know, there's that window of, hey, the world is new. I'm going off in the world. You know, if you, I went off to college. And then the reality after college, like, now what? Shit. What do I fucking do now? <laughs> yeah. And what I was talking about, we get these uh, youth culture movies every generation. And it seems like the ones that really endure are the ones that kind of hit closer to home than others. Kind of, so, yes, courts is a little bit more truthful and this is a lot more uh this thing is that slick hollywood made for mass consumption yeah but, but it doesn't erase the characters real emotions i think i think yes oh, no. it's it's a slicker production by a long shot but what those but, characters but, are going through i completely understand but this is kind of like say a john hughes movie to best times at ridgemont high okay yes okay yes it, it takes a lot of the grit out of it yeah, where Hugh, well, it's also Hughes. The Hughes films are a little bit more cultural, uh, 
touchstones for people. Less sleazy. <laughs> let's be honest, Fast Times is a lot more quote-unquote realistic. Yeah, well, Fast Times is, I think, the best teen movie ever made, so. But yeah, so that's kind of where I see this, and, like, one thing that I, for some reason, I didn't catch on till this viewing, it's like, it's not so much that it's reality sucks, it's like reality, like, sound bites, is the point. That's kind of like with, with her documentary and what mm-hmm. it is, is that it's basically her taking little bites of reality and showing it to you. And I did start thinking about something in this in this viewing, and how the hell did Ben Stiller convince all of her friends to sign release forms for the show? Yeah. <laughs> because I, I, I doubt... Widow Rider's character had them sign anything. They probably just went along with it because, oh, she's just making her little documentary thing. It'll never, nothing will ever happen with it. Right. It's not like he was a smooth talker. You know, he's a nervous little guy. So it is, that that part is surprising. Yeah. And now this MTV-like studio is going to put their lives on the air. How the hell did did they sign off on this? Because they needed to be compensated for their, for the likeness. For their all that stuff, it's like sure we can figure that we all writer signed off her IP rights to this concept. Yeah, well, it was a pilot episode, right? It never aired. That's it's hard to tell. Well, it's like yeah, it probably didn't air, but uh, beyond because they wouldn't have had any content beyond what tapes you know he had given the people. Yeah, well, remember MTV used to have like a special uh, like one-off episodes. I think Tabitha Soren. Like investigates kind of episodes where it's about one topic per episode. It wasn't like a continuous thing. Yeah, and I think they parody that. They they do a parody of that in the film with the uh, the crip fashion. Yeah. The uh, I think the show is a good little time capsule of what was going on with MTV culture. I mean, this this is clearly like big on uh, Fox and MTV kind of had their pulse on this generation and in younger. And it is a good kind of indictment of that era. I see how Ben Stiller got uh, hired for it because if you go back and watch the Ben Stiller show, which sadly only lasted 13 almost perfect episodes, he really knew what was going on with that whole generation. Yeah, it's it, this is such a, a very good movie. And it does, everything about it feels right. And that's the thing one of the most important things about film is something so that has to be authentic it has to feel yeah well and it's it's nice that not all the characters were clean cut like you know not clean cut like and shaved and whatever but i mean like oh this guy has to be more likable like it wasn't put in front of a test audience and the studio meddled with it they're like yeah all these characters are kind of fucking complicated and not yeah. exactly likable all the way around and even then it's like you can you do feel complicated with your feelings towards some of these people like Ben Stiller's character, as best I can tell, wasn't really an asshole and his the uh, the pilot that we see wasn't under his control. He just right, yeah. Up. I still don't understand how she ends up with Ethan Hawke when Ben Stiller clearly is the guy for her. Yeah. Just well, because we all want the bad boy, because that's how There's that's no how those- passion. You know, what was it, uh, the Devo song, Love Without Anger Isn't Love at All? <laughs> I guess you kind of kind of have to hate the person you're in love with. I don't know. That sounds like a toxic relationship. Yep. <laughs> we were talking about that kind of stuff back then, though. 
All right, so that is the end. Oh, no, hold on. There's one more thing I want to say. I do blame this movie for bringing my Sharona back. Look, I know it has a good beat, but that song is about fucking underage girls. <laughs> and, <laughs> ew. Well, it did give us uh, Stave from Lisa Loeb, so we'll still balance out. Okay, I'll forgive him for that. This goes really well with singles. I think those two movies really had their pulse on that era. Yeah, definitely. You could say Clueless, but Clueless seems a little more vapid, and I think it's intentional. It's not supposed to be, like, gripped in reality. No, no. That that one is is just a... It's a good 90s time capsule, just in general, but not in the same manner of something like this. Which is so weird, because it's from the director of Fast Time at the Ridge My High. <laughs> well, that's why it's good. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's the end of this episode. Anything you want to plug before we go? Uh, not doing much of anything right now. Okay, neither am I. I'm picking my nose. Oh, you mean literally at this moment or in general? Oh, in the, the wider scheme of things. Oh, whoops, that's I, awkward. I can tell you all about D&D. <laughs> all right, so you know where to find our podcast. Uh, subscribe, share, like, whatever, comment. Let us know what you think. And that is it. We're going to be moving on to 1995 soon enough. Nice. Check it later, Holmes. Or something, I don't know. I'm trying to be cool with that. Hey, home skillet. It's the 90s. Yo.